Obviously, we're in Luke chapter 22 this morning, and it is Thursday evening of Passion Week in our story. It's the final week leading up to Jesus' crucifixion. On this Thursday night, Jesus is in Jerusalem. He's in the upper room of a house. He is celebrating the Passover with his disciples. And as we spoke last week, the Passover was a feast for Israel to remember God's deliverance, taking them out of Egypt, the slavery and the bondage of Egypt. And God did that through a series of plagues to, to kind of shock and awe Pharaoh into doing his will. And basically the 10th plague is what broke uh, Pharaoh. The 10th plague was the plague where a, an angel, a destroying angel, would come through all of Egypt and destroy every firstborn who did not have the blood of a lamb on the door. And so that night when the destroying angel came through, those who did not have the blood of the lamb on the door, they lost their firstborn son. And so as Jesus is with his disciples, they're observing the Passover meal and what they are eating and what they're drinking is looking back upon that night, helping them remember this, Jesus takes the bread and he takes the cup and the symbols that were there, and he makes a new uh, connection for them that it's not to be really looking back anymore upon that day, but it's going to be looking forward to the cross for them, backwards for us. And so he institutes the Lord's Supper, that the fulfillment of the Passover is that the blood of the Lamb upon a person who believes, is we believe that Jesus Christ died for our sins, and therefore God's judgment passes over us. Amen. If you don't have the blood of the Lamb, God's judgment remains upon us. And Jesus, who is the Lamb of God, would be sacrificed within 24 hours for the sins of those who would believe. And so, verse 19 says, And he took the bread, and he gave thanks, and he broke it, and he gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. A very holy and sacred moment. But if you keep reading what happens, and then verse 21 says, But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go, verse 22, as it has been decreed, but woe to the man who betrays him. Jesus is making an absolutely shocking statement for the disciples that one who is going to sit, who is sitting at the table, eating the Passover them, will betray him. Now, we know from the beginning of the chapter in verses 3 through 6 that Satan has already entered into Judas to conspire uh, with the uh, leaders in Israel. Um, it says there, uh, the officers of the temple, how they might betray Jesus, and Judas consented to that. He watched uh, for an opportunity to where Jesus was removed and away from people because the Pharisees cared about people. They don't care about God. And so they're trying to do their business apart from everybody else, so there isn't an uproar, self-preservation. They want to take advantage, and Judas was a part of that. And as I mentioned last week, this whole situation did not take Jesus by surprise. Jesus wasn't going, oh no, I'm being betrayed. He wasn't going, I can't believe that Judas did this, although he was personally 
hurt and shocked, and we see that in his emotions. He knew exactly what Scripture had said. Jesus knew that Judas would actually betray him even though he had chosen him, and I believe he knew when he chose him that he would betray him. John 6, 70-71 tells us that it was all according to the prophecies, that he was a devil. Jesus knew that. And Jesus said, it is someone who is eating with them that was going to betray them. And this fulfills Psalm 41, verse 9, that says, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who has ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. A close friend. Jesus considered Judas a close friend, and he was betrayed by him. But so we're not mis- mistaken. Although Judas would betray Jesus, it was God who decreed it. And that's very important to note. It was all in God's plan. Jesus was betrayed, arrested, and killed because God decreed that it would happen. In John 10, 17 through 18, just in case we're wondering if Jesus was just a, you know, oh no, circumstances happened and Jesus got crucified because he crossed the wrong people. John chapter 10, verse 17 through 18, Jesus says, The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, Jesus says, but I lay it down of my own accord. Wow. I don't know about you, but I, I, I can't claim that verse. Anyone, anybody, anytime, I can't control my heartbeat, I can control my lungs, I, I mean, I can't, you know, we think, you know, I don't have control over when I'm going to live or die, basically, in, in, unless you kill yourself, right? But Jesus says, I have that power, I'm going to lay it down, and by the way, I'm going to pick it back up. That's a very powerful statement, because if he can lay his life down and pick it back up, guess who else's life he can pick back up? yours. And that's why we trust in the resurrection, which is coming up next week, not in Luke by any means. He says, I have the authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This is the command I received from my Father. So Jesus says back there in Luke twenty two twenty two, back where we are, the Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. I'm going because it's been written, because that's God's command. God is in control, but woe to the man who betrays him. And here you have the sovereignty of God, God's sovereign plan working out, and yet you have Judas operating within his free will. It's amazing to see how these things work together in history. Judas willfully, from his own volition, acts to betray Jesus. And Jesus says, woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. I don't know how many of you, you you read the Bible and you read words like woe and you're like, Whoa, you know, like, <laughs> no, that's not kind of the Greek there. Woe means cursed or damned. So that's what Jesus is saying. This guy is damned to hell is what he's saying. Consigned to hell. Those are heavy words. In Matthew's account in chapter 26, verse 4, he goes even further about Judas. He goes, it would be better for him if he had not been born. And you imagine what that means. In other words, uh, the betrayal and the murder of Jesus Christ is the greatest crime in all of history of humanity. The second being probably the betrayal of Adam. But this is, this is heavy on Jesus' heart. And upon hearing that one of them was going to betray Jesus, they're all in that upper room. They all hear that one of them is going to betray. Verse 23 happens. 
And then they began to question among themselves which of them it might would, would be that would do this. And Matthew tells us at this point that the disciples became very sad. And they asked Jesus, one after another, surely you don't mean me. Is it I? They're asking this question, and verse 25 of Matthew 26 says, Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. He'd already been possessed by the enemy. he had already made the plans. He was always looking for an opportune situation. And there they are gathered together. What's that called? Hypocrisy, deceit. And his deceit was so amazing that none of the disciples knew it. Jesus knew it from the beginning, but they did not know it. He was an expert in deception. With the exception of maybe John and and Peter, the disciples didn't even know what was happening. The only reason why I say John and Peter is because if you read in John, the book of John, chapter 13, verse 24, Peter asked John, he leans over and he asked John, hey, John, who is leaning against Jesus, he asked him, hey, who does he mean? Go ask Jesus for me. What is, what is, what's he talking about? Who's that? Right? And Jesus says, the one that I dip this into and hand it to is the one who's going to betray me. Now, I don't know if the rest of the guys heard that, but those guys probably did. Now, whether they understand it, stood it or not, I don't know, but Jesus knew what was going on in Judas's heart when no one else did. And so the discussion among the disciples progressed from saying, Lord, is it me? As they're questioning, am I going to be the one to betray? It changes to verse 24. And a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. I mean, I have no... I'm reading the same Bible you are. Isn't this the nature of people? They're sad. They're like, is it I? Is it I? Is it I? Well, surely it's not me. I'm greater than you. That, that's, that's my logic in this. Anybody else? That's what's happening. It seems as though they're questioning who would betray Jesus, led them to talk about which of them was considered the greatest and therefore most unlikely to betray Jesus. Well, I'm like really special, so definitely not me. You know, and you know they just all started piling in and, you know, it's a family dinner, so that you know what happens there. And so Jesus has most likely already washed their, pe- their feet earlier than this. And he taught them on humility at that point. He's already gone into who is the greatest, who is the least, and all this stuff. And then they all argue about who's the greatest again. And I want you to think about this. Jesus is about to die within 24 hours. Who is... What, who was his plan? Those guys. Those guys. That's who he's handing the kingdom to. That's who's going to go. That's why we're here. I'd be a little nervous at this point. I don't know about you. <laughs> I also take comfort because I really identify with those guys. <laughs> but verse 25 says, Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles, they, they lord it over them. And those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. You're not to be like that. Jesus is is saying 
The world operates differently than the kingdom. The world operates differently than the kingdom. The kings of the Gentiles lorded over them. They call themselves benefactors. And that's how the kingdom of man works. People aspire to power over each other, and then they give themselves titles. Sound familiar? Yeah, that's how we work. We seek to ascend. What did Satan say? Isaiah, I think it was. I will ascend the man of God, and I will, and I will, and I will. It's interesting, when, when Satan was tempting Christ, what did he do? He, yes, he, ha, he made him do, he, you know, he's like, hey, change the bread into whatever. But what did he do? He took him up on top of the mountain to see the nations. He took him to the pinnacle of the temple to impress. That's what Satan does. He's always seeking to exalt self. That is the way man works. That's in your heart. Do you know that? That's in my heart. Pride. Root of all kinds of evil. And Jesus says, you're not to be like that. To his disciples. The kingdom that you, are, you have been born to is not like that. Don't be like that. Instead, and I love this about Jesus, he tells us actually what to do. Verse 26, the greatest among you. You're arguing about who's the greatest? Okay, well, here you go. The greatest among you should be like the youngest. And the one who rules like the one who what? Serves. And so Jesus lays down the model for leadership and for ruling within the church. I don't know about you, but they don't teach you this class on earth. The mark of leadership in the kingdom is humility. Now, Jesus is not saying there are not to be rulers. That's not what he's saying. He's saying those of you who rule, this should be what you should aspire to. This should be a characteristic Jesus is saying that those who lead should be like the youngest servant, you know, like a servant. The mark of leadership in the kingdom is humility. The world seeks to be served. The kingdom seeks to serve. Amen? Verse 27, now Jesus gives an illustration. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I'm among you as one who serves, right? Jesus is having them probably recall when he washed their feet, but he's saying how he has served them by washing their feet later that night. Look at me. I am the, I'm the, I'm the, I'm the, the man. I am the chief person at this whole place. And what did I do? I got down and I washed your feet. Let me read you quickly John's account of this. John 13, 3 through 17 says, The evening meal was in progress. The devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon, the scary, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from the 
from God and was returning to God. And so he got up from the meal, he took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist. And after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel. So that was wrapped, you know, that was wrapped around him. And you have to remember these guys are in unpaved areas and their feet are dirty, okay? And they're guys' feet. And he came to Simon Peter, who had said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then, then, then Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. And Jesus answered, those who, ha- who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean. You're saved, Peter. You need to be sanctified, is the picture there. You need to be cleaned up. And you are clean, though not every one of you. And we know he's alluding to Judas, right? For he knew, verse 11, who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. And when he had finished washing their feet, he put his clothes on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? And he asked, you call me teacher and Lord, this title, right? And Jesus says, and rightly so, for this is what I am. Now that I, your teacher and Lord, at this point is where we go, yes, that's right, now do this for me and blah, 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 right? And we start laying down the law. But what does Jesus do? He takes his power and he takes his authority and he teaches them about the kingdom. He blesses them. He changes their hearts and minds. He, he gives them something that they're lacking. What does he say? You call me teacher and Lord. That's right. Verse 14, now that I, your teacher and Lord, have washed your feet, you also should what? Wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. You are not greater than me, Jesus is saying. Now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. If I, who am greater than you, came down and, and humbled myself below and ministered to you in this humble way, follow me and do the same. The way we rule in the kingdom is with humility and service. The greatest is the least. And so Jesus, having taught his disciples again about what it means to be great in the kingdom and with less than a day before he's crucified, Jesus finally tells them of the authority that, that will be theirs and it is theirs in the kingdom. How long have they been arguing about what's going on and, and who's going to be the greatest and I'm going to do this? Can I sit at your right hand? Can I sit in your left hand? And they're, they're always just wondering what position, what title are they going to get? What power are they going to get? When does Jesus tell them? At the last moment. That's not good. At the last moment, right? Why? Because they got pride. And Jesus is teaching them about humility and authority, humility and authority, humility and authority, over and over and over and over and over again. And now at the last minute, he says, now this is what's going to happen. 
Verse 28, you are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom, just as my further conferred on me a kingdom, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. I mean, that just had to blow their mind. Here are these lowly fishermen that are going to be kings and ruling over Israel. Now, some think this is, um, this is talking about the messianic kingdom. When Jesus comes and establishes his earthly kingdom, that they will be sitting on the thrones judging the nation of Israel, judging either ruling or, or executing judgment over that group of people. Absolutely fascinating to me. These are the same guys that are going to be, you know, just ditch Jesus in just a few hours, right? Even though they're going to do that and and scatter when the shepherd is struck, that's only going to be temporary. They will fall, but their faith will not fail. Amen. They will fall, but their faith will not fail. How many of you have fallen? How many times has the Lord got you back up and said, let's go, get out of the mud, you're clean, you need a little cleaning up, you don't need to be born again again, you need to follow me, deny yourself, pick up your cross, let's go, start following me again. Some of you are sitting here in this morning and and you've got one foot in the gutter, one fist in the gold, get out of the gutter, repent, start following Jesus, Amen. It's time to enjoy His goodness. And yes, there's trials, lots of them. But He's talking about this future reward they're going to have. I love that about the disciples. How many times are we looking at the disciples and, and it's just all teaching moments? Like it's always, oh, of you little, of little faith. You have no idea what's going on. No, that's the wrong interpretation. Oh, don't do that. Peter, be quiet. Oh, you can't cast this out. Let me help you. I mean, that's like the story of the disciples, Right? I feel comfortable with that. <laughs> I feel encouraged with that. Those are my guys, right? <laughs> oh, Lord, help me. As I seek to follow you and live after you, you know, I'm, I'm just going to blow it. But I love the passion of Peter. It's misguided at times, but the Lord takes that and he hones that into a blessing. Despite their pride and, and all the quarreling, they had about who is the greatest and all this stuff. They remained faithful to Jesus. Now listen, other disciples had stopped following Jesus. Remember in John six sixty six when he stopped talking, you have to eat my bread and drink my, eat, eat, you know, eat my flesh and eat and drink my blood. And they just said, man, this is a hard teaching. And they stopped following Jesus. They didn't have genuine faith. They were done. But because of that faithfulness of the disciples, and obviously it was Christ in them, He gave them the reward of eating and drinking at his table and judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And we have yet to really see truly what that's like. But they're going to fall away. They're going to, in just a few minutes, have their, in just a few hours, they're going to have their faith tested. But it will not fail. And Jesus begins to speak to Peter now, who's really the spokesman of all of them. He really is. I mean, he's the one who speaks a lot, gets his foot in his mouth, the whole thing's going on. He's always giving his opinions. You ever notice that about Peter? He did it here. He's like, oh no, Lord, you can't wash my feet. 
He's like, oh, well, then wash all of me, Lord. You know what I mean? He's just, he's out there, right? He's always questioning things on behalf of the disciples. They always say, hey, Peter, go ask Jesus because they know he'll do it, <laughs> right? And he does. I love it. Judas would betray Jesus. Peter will deny him, but Peter's faith will not die. And we'll see here why. Why does Peter's faith continue? Verse 31, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. And how many of you have, um, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat? Just you as wheat. How many of you have that? And now it has y'all here. Because it's plural. It's plural in the Greek. And so that's why they're saying all of you. He's, so he's speaking, he's saying, listen, Simon, kind of a representative, he's saying, listen, Satan has sought to sift you as wheat, all of you guys as wheat. But then he gets personal and says, but I have prayed for you, right? That's personal, that's singular. Peter's name was Simon until Jesus changed it to Peter, but Jesus only calls Simon Peter once here in, I think in verse 34, which we'll get to. Probably because he's always acting like his old self. But Jesus says there in verse 31, Simon, Simon, this is really most likely showing disappointment. He's just, Simon, Simon, you guys are arguing about who's the greatest and all this stuff, man. Are you going to get it? Jesus says, Satan is asked to sift you as wheat. We know we have harvest around here, but in the old days before the machines, they would take wheat and they would violently shake it and then throw it up in the air. And that would be the process in which the wheat would be separated from the chaff. And so they'd throw it up and the wheat would be blown, uh, the chaff would be blown away and the kernel would fall to the ground. And what basically Satan is saying here is, is I demand, and that's that word, ask is, is demand in the Greek. It's more emphatic. And he's saying, I have demanded to take you guys and shake you to your core. That's what Satan desired to do to violently shake them and throw them around. So that's that picture. Satan wanted to violently shake them, to shatter their faith. And that is emphatic. He's demanding. Satan wanted to sift the disciples, to violently shake them to their core. And that's something we need to know about Satan is that he's asking He's asking God. He he has asked. Satan is God's devil, someone said, which is true. Satan is in rebellion, but that rebellion has parameters. The devil must ask permission to do anything to God's redeemed. Anything that happens to us happens because God has allowed it. If you remember the story of Job, let me back this up because we gotta gotta get there. If you remember the story of Job, if you remember the story of Job, specifically chapter one, Satan comes before, he appears before God to give an account. So apparently, somehow, angels and demons they have to give an account to God, even though they're rebellious. And God and, and Satan sees Job and he knows that he's fallen the Lord. And the only reason why Job's fallen the Lord is because God's protected him. So Satan goes, let me at him, and he will deny you. Let me sift him, and he will deny you. So God says, okay, but you can't touch his body. 
And so havoc is wreaked in his family, his home, and all these types of things. And he still doesn't curse God. Goes back to God. Satan goes back to God and says, hey, now let me touch his body. That's the only reason why. And so here he is, Job is scraping pus off the boils with a, a pot shirt. It's gross. He, and he's got three wonderful friends who are antagonizing him for days, trying to help him. And then in chapter 13, verse 15, Job says, Though he slay me, yet I will trust him. Though he slay me, yet I will trust him. Listen, what Satan means for temptation and destruction in your life, God will use as a test to encourage you and to strengthen and to refine your faith. God does not tempt. He tests. Satan tempts to draw you away. God seeks to refine what is already there. I think quite often we pray the wrong prayers when we run into temptation and trials and hard times. God, get me out of this. Okay, that can be prayer number one. That's fine. But if that doesn't immediately happen, if, then God must possibly have something else that He wants to work on. And I think the next question is, God, I'm in a trial. How can I glorify you in this? I hate it. I don't want to be in it. I don't like the circumstances. Lord, help me. Refine me. Make me more like your son. And I don't have to have the big picture. Just show me what to do today. Later, Satan, well, Satan, he desired to sift the disciples as wheat. And notice Jesus didn't say that he wouldn't let him sift as wheat, them as wheat. The request was granted. Isn't that wild? He says, but, what does does Jesus say? But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. In other words, it's going to happen, but I'm praying that through this whole thing that your faith will not fail. And when Jesus prays that your faith will not fail, guess what's not happening to your faith? It's not failing. So why did Peter persevere through the trial? Because Jesus interceded on his behalf. Where's Jesus right now? He's at the right hand of the Father, interceding for you. What is Satan doing? Don't you see them? Can you let me? And all this stuff. And so Satan has at us, and we have bad days, and things are being refined, and God's going, okay. And what, gets, what happens to your soul and your character through the trials? It reveals the yuck. It reveals the things that God, you just say, God, I can't handle this. Get it out. Get away. And, and, and he purges, he does something deep in your character, he forms you, makes you more like Christ. This is why I reject the whole wealth, health, prosperity gospel. It's through suffering that we become more like Christ. It is. He suffered, he's our model, what's going to happen to us? You will have trials and tribulations, but fear not because I have overcome the world. Amen. He's your only hope. This is the time of trial and, and suffering while you have this body of flesh where God wants to refine you and to make you more like Jesus. And if you're suffering right now, you're not done yet. <laughs> you got a heartbeat, you're not done yet. God's working on you. I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. Satan would bring that temptation and the hardships all meant to crush Peter's faith and disciples' faith. But God allowed Peter to fail 
but not to fail and fall away because Jesus prayed for Peter that his faith would not fail. And the reason our faith is sustained is because of Jesus, who is the author and finisher of our faith. No one can take you out of his hands. Amen. I rest on that. You know, we argue sometimes about the sovereignty of God and all this stuff. I lean into it. Are you kidding me? I'm leaning into it. I love the fact that God's got me. And yes, I have a soul and a conscience that I need to obey Him in. But I tell you what, it is, it is refreshing just to lean upon God and His promises and His truth. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Me too. And when you have turned back, and when you have turned back, Peter, strengthen your brethren. You're going to be sifted. You're going to fail. You're going to fall. But you're going to turn back. Why? Because I have prayed for you. I've prayed for you. Peter turned away from the Lord as he denied him here later that night. He would eventually be restored by Jesus. Remember in the sea? Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Go feed my sheep. Go tend my lambs. Go feed my sheep. And he cries. And then Peter goes, what about that guy? And there's this big problem again. But God restores Peter. And it was through trials like this, through, oh, no, before, through falling to Satan's devices, that Peter would later go on to be able to say things like 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, to strengthen the brothers. He says, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. You think he's talking from experience? Yes, Jesus would go say, hey, pray with me, pray with me that you may not fall into temptation. What did Peter do? Fell asleep three times. He would fall prey. Verse 9, he says, resist him, stand firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers through the whole world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings and the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory after you have suffered a little while will himself restore you and make you strong and firm and steadfast. You see that? God will do what? He will restore you himself. Peter himself was restored by Jesus Christ. Some of you are off the reservation and God is calling you back and He Himself will restore you. There's going to come a time when Jesus sits you one-on-one and starts speaking to your heart and says, let's deal with this. And we just heard about it with Mark. What a testimony, brother. How the Lord just said, okay, what's next? And He just kept going and going and going and digging deeper into His life until fruit started to be produced. The fruit that glorifies God, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, and self-control, all those faithfulness, um, those things that were not in you before. You had the opposite of those things. And now God worked those in by His Holy Spirit as He submitted to God and His Word, and life started to happen. And now there's fruit. So, Peter prays those things later on. He says those, writes those things to the church. But that's Peter later on. That's not Peter in verse 33. Peter in 33, he replies, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. 
Peter obviously had a love and a zeal for Jesus. How many of you said, yeah, man, I love you, Jesus. I'm going to do this and that for you, only just to fall on your face a short time after? <laughs> Anybody else? I'm going to witness for this guy. I'm going to go to church every day. I'm going to do this and that. And oh, You don't know, Lord, the things I will do for you. All right, I want you to pray this morning. Oh, it's like 1130. Oh, yeah, you know, whatever it is. Yeah, we've all got that Peter stuff going on. You know, it's interesting, the difference between Peter here and the Peter in Acts is, is that he was filled with the Holy Spirit. He was walking in the Spirit, empowered by the Holy Spirit. And the same people that he denied Jesus in front of, he was empowered to speak in front of. We need the power of the Holy Spirit, and it's ours as we let the Word of Christ dwell in us richly. But Jesus answered, said, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, that you will deny me three times, that, you, that I deny that you even know me. Peter would eventually be imprisoned. Did you know that? And Peter would eventually be crucified. And church history, church tradition says that Peter was crucified upside down because he said he wasn't worthy to die in the same manner as his Lord. But that night, Peter would deny Jesus three times before the rooster crowed. Church, we've got a, where we are and where he's taken us. Verse 35, then Jesus asked them, when I sent you without a purse, a bag, or sandals, you, yeah, did you lack anything? Nothing, they answered. Now, if you remember back in Luke chapter 10, verse 4, he said to them, hey, you don't need anything, go, and then when you go to a house, they'll take care of you, right? That's, that's back there in, in 10, verse 4, Luke 10, verse 4. Jesus changes those orders now, verse 36. He says to them, in closing, but now if you have a purse, take it. And um, also a bag, and if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. It is written, as he was numbered with the transgressors, uh, aggressors, and I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. Jesus is saying that things are going to be different now. Quoting Isaiah 53, 12 there, Jesus is saying that he is going to be numbered with the transgressors. In other words, now that the nation has rejected him, they're going to reject them. As they hate me, they're going to hate you. Instead of acceptance, there will be persecution. Get ready. In verse 38, the disciples said, See, Lord, we, here we have two swords. That's enough, Jesus replied. It's apparently... Apparently, they weren't going to get it. They were focused on swords. Guys, you know, this is not a verse about buying guns, okay? I know we've done that. See, it's Jesus says this right here. It's Jesus said, go get guns. It's not what he's talking about. They were focused on swords, and my guess is that they would have an offensive application in mind as opposed to a defense. We're going to usher in the kingdom. Later that night, Jesus is betrayed by Judas and arrested. And who takes a swing at the high priest's servant? Malchus. Peter goes ahead and takes out a sword and hacks. The, he's going, probably going for his, his neck or something, and he hacks the guy's ears off. Jesus picks up the ear, puts it back on, and says, he says to Peter, put your sword back in your place. Put it back. And Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. What are you doing? Nowhere in Scripture does it talk about us going to take the kingdom by force. This is, and I love this about the Lord, verse 53, do you not think 
I can call on my Father and He will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. One angel destroyed like 300,000 people with a donkey bone or something. 12 legions, I've got it covered, Peter, don't need your help. But how then would what? The Scriptures be fulfilled that it says it must happen this way. Jesus is all about the Word, about His Father's Word coming forward. The kingdom of God isn't advanced by that kind of sword, church. It's not advanced by that kind of sword. This is how the kingdom of God is advanced. By the sword, the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, the gospel going into the hearts and lives of people through the redeemed in great humility, in great love, in great patience, in great long-suffering, just like God is with us, willing to lay down our lives for others, even when people don't like us, because we know it'll be good for them. The kingdom of God is advanced by the sword of the word of God, the proclamation of the everlasting gospel, not by lording it over, not by conquering, but through humility, by the foolishness of preaching. Not the way man does it. And I love God's plan. It's through you. And you're going, well, you don't know me. No, did we just read about these guys? Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. He just wants people to say, I'm yours, Lord. Teach me day by day. So two things today, church. One, if you're, if you're off the reservation, come back to the Lord. Repent. I want you to come up and we'll pray for you after service. Grab someone next to you and say, listen, I need prayer. Oh, I, I got to come back to the Lord. Second thing is take heart. God has you. Thank Him for it. Enjoy it and ask Him, what do you want me to do today, in, even in the midst of hard trials? And know that our in, enemy, even though he might do a lot to us and be allowed to do things for us, that God will use those things to fashion in you. Christ Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you and we want to thank you so much for all that you have done. And we ask, Lord, that you would Put these words deep in our hearts, Lord, as we read them today. Just your, your faithfulness, God, your long-suffering. You are so good to us. And I pray that this church would be built up, edified, strengthened as we go this week. And I pray that there would be opportunities for share people, to, to share with people about your, your work in our lives. I pray that they would see it, Lord. And we ask all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.